Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan and if this episode is coming out to you guys, it is just me this week for you. Every once in a while something comes up and we're not able to record at our normal time and usually we can find a different time to record together still. However, this time, the potential time that Mark's given us, I've got to take my car in for its MOT and it will all depend on whether or not I'm home in time. So what I've decided to do is record this episode for you all so that if we don't manage to record together, it saves Mark having to record solo on his lunch break. So either way, it was going to be one of us if we weren't able to get together it's me so I don't know is that a short straw is that I don't know now it's not my week to be telling an episode either so I don't have anything prepped but what I chose to do is one of our wonderful listeners Samantha Lewis has written and researched a case for the show a case that she found particularly interesting and wanted to share and actually she wrote the script as kind of her first draft and said you know make any changes but we've had a look and we think it's really good so I'm going to present to you the Tyneside Strangler written and researched by Samantha Lewis as this week's episode it's always weird when we have an episode where it's a solo one because you're you kind of want us to have our chats we want to have our chats we want to have a discussion around it so it'll be interesting to see um I don't know like I always wish that I could chat to Mark about things as we're going. So yeah, it will be a little bit different. And it's also an episode that I've not written myself. So I'm probably going to learn some things as we go. Very exciting. It also means that um, I haven't got our Patreon thank you. So I'm really sorry about that. But we will be doing a little bumper version next week. Unless, of course, this episode that I'm recording right now never goes to air. And we end up recording together. In which case, I'm talking to myself for no reason. Either way, life, that's just it. So, hi, thank you for joining us again. Thanks for coming back and it is great to speak to you all. Let's crack on. The death of a child is always a tragedy. The murder of a child almost unthinkable. Yet, the city of Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the United Kingdom was shaken to its core when not one, but two little boys, barely out of toddlerhood, were senselessly slain in the spring of 1968. The swinging 60s were drawing to a close, clothes were getting progressively more colourful, and the Simon and Garfunkel song Mrs Robinson was frequenting the airwaves. The area of Scotswood, in the west of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, was a poor working-class area and was undergoing an urban renewal project. Many inner-city boroughs in the area saw the old and cramped Victorian-era terrace slums and tenement buildings demolished and then replaced with new modern houses and high-rise flats. Back then, children played freely in the streets for hours on end, against the backdrop of derelict buildings among the rubble-strewn wasteland, where some homes had already been demolished. Their mothers generally held the responsibility of caring for the home and the younger children while the fathers were at work, and so the children went out to play, rain or shine. Not every home had a telephone, but there was a reliable community network. Neighbours often kept a watchful eye on each other's children. The communities were tightly knit. Everyone knew everyone. 
Youngsters were given a good amount of freedom to adventure and explore, and parents felt that their children were perfectly safe playing out in the streets, even children as young as three and four years old. For many, their curfew was when the streetlights came on, when they would return home for their dinner. Others would return sooner if they got hungry, or perhaps if they'd argued with their friends. A favoured playground of many local children was a large, rubble-strewn area of wasteland situated near a railway line and affectionately nicknamed by the children Tin Lizzie. The adjacent street was St Margaret's Road, Scotswood, which contained a mixture of both derelict and occupied buildings, in which some of the families remained waiting to be rehoused by the local council. May the 25th, 1968 was unusually chilly, and three local boys were combing the empty properties in St Margaret's Road for wood to bring home to their parents. They entered one of the derelicts, number 85, and scavenged what they could, going room by room, eventually happening upon an upstairs former bedroom. What they found in this room was not wood, but the lifeless body of a small child. The floor was peppered with rubbish and rubble, Amongst sweet wrappers and empty pillboxes, in the debris, lay a small boy with blonde hair and chubby cheeks, on his back with his arms stretched above his head, specks of blood and foam around his mouth. He wasn't moving, he wasn't breathing. And little Martin Brown was just four years old. Published photographs of him show a smiling, happy character, with a shock of light, curly hair. He lived with his family at number 140 St Margaret's Road. And as it was a Saturday, his parents were having a well-deserved lion, having worked hard all week. And even aged four, Martin knew the drill. He fed his baby sister the usual breakfast of milk and bread. He dressed his sister, then himself, and grabbed a quick breakfast now that his jobs were done. He then donned his spring coat and announced to his mother that he was going out to play. He spent his day in and out of his friends' houses, not before he munched on a biscuit given to him by some contractors who had been working in the street for the electricity board. At around three o'clock, Martin briefly returned home and was given some money from his father so he could buy himself a lollipop at the local grocer's. But he would be dead within the hour. I mean, this blows my mind that this is... This is a four-year-old and he's literally behaving how I think nowadays you'd kind of think of like a 12-year-old or something. That's incredible. He's getting his baby sister dressed and fed... I suppose it just goes to show the difference in the world then and the world now. The three boys who had happened upon Martin instantly raised the alarm and a local workman named John Hall came running to offer his assistance. He attempted to perform CPR but was unable to revive Martin. During the commotion, two young girls from the area peered curiously into the doorway, into the bedroom where Hall was desperately performing CPR on the boy. They were quickly ushered out of the house by the now-gathered onlookers who didn't want children to be traumatised by the harrowing scene unfolding before them. The ambulance crew arrived but were also unable to revive the little boy and the following day Dr Bernard Knight conducted a post-mortem to establish his cause of death. There were no obvious signs of struggle or violence which would indicate foul play. While it was noted that an empty pill bottle was found amongst the litter at the scene, no evidence of poisoning was apparent, so therefore Dr Knight was unable to determine the cause of Martin's death. His death was thought to be the result of a tragic accident, and an open verdict was pronounced on the 7th of June 1968. The close community was rocked by this death of one of their own, and so very young and so very sudden. Martin's grieving family were inundated with visitors over the days that followed, 
Most were wishing to express their condolences and offer sympathy. Others no doubt were nosy and eager for gossip. One visit came from a little girl who stopped by and asked if she could see Martin. His mother, Jean Brown, explained gently that Martin had passed away and the girl chillingly replied, Oh, I know he's dead. I want to see him in his coffin. Overcome with emotion and anger, Martin's mother slammed the door in the girl's face. That's just so... I know that children have no filter, and that's, but that's really, really creepy and weird, isn't it? Over the coming weeks, a number of protest marches were held by the Scotswood community, urging the council to speed up the demolition of the old homes and rehousing to new homes. And this was spurred on by Martin's death, with many believing that the child has met his unfortunate end by misadventure playing in hazardous conditions. Many of the local children attended the marches and were pictured by newspapers holding placards, imploring the builders and the council to work faster and make their neighbourhoods safe. July arrived and the children of Newcastle were enjoying the long summer days, with no school to interrupt their fun and games. Slowly, life had returned to normal in the community and Martin Brown's death was no longer the hot topic of conversation. But the discovery of three-year-old Brian Howe's body sent the community into a stunned shock once more. Bonnie Little Brian, aged just three years old, lived at number 64 White House Road, Scotswood, with his father, his siblings and the family dog, Lassie. He was last seen on the 31st of July 1968 in the afternoon, playing in the street with his sibling, Lassie the dog and two other children. When it became time for Brian to go home, however, he didn't return. His family searched for him, looking in all the usual spots that he'd play, but he was nowhere to be seen. Growing increasingly concerned for the little boy's welfare, concerned relatives, friends and neighbours joined the search for Brian, frantically calling his name into the shadows of the evening. However, Brian's unmoving body was discovered by a search party by two large concrete blocks upon the Tin Lizzie, the nearby railway line, at around 11pm, and he was sadly beyond saving. His lips were already blue, and his neck was adorned with scratches and bruises. The authorities were called, and the first policeman on the scene noted immediately that an attempt had been made to conceal his body. It had been partially covered with grass and foliage, and he also noted a pair of broken scissors at Brian's feet. The coroner was able to conclude that Brian's cause of death was strangulation, and it was estimated that he had been dead for around seven hours prior to the discovery of his body. Noted were various puncture wounds to Brian's little body. Hair had been cut from his head, and it looked as if someone had attempted to carve an M into his stomach. Due to the amount of force inflicted on the child, it led the coroner to conclude that the murderer may even have been a child. Numerous fibres were collected from Brian's clothing and shoes, and as these did not match any belonging to the Howe household, these were kept as evidence, as it was almost certain that these fibres would belong to the murderer. A murder investigation was subsequently opened, and a large-scale manhunt ensued. It did not take long for the rumour mill to begin whirring, and about another little boy dead, just a few weeks after the death of Martin Brown, townsfolk were beginning to speculate that these two deaths may not just be coincident. And the police were in increasing agreement this might not be a coincidence. Due to the theory that a child could be behind Brian's death, by August the 2nd, 1968, over a thousand children had been questioned by authorities. Among these were two little girls local to the area. Their names were Norma Bell, aged 14, and her friend Mary Bell, no relations, and she was aged 11. 
Numerous witnesses had informed police that they had seen Norma and Mary playing with Brian on the day of his murder, and the police were really keen to speak with the pair. During separate police interviews, both girls freely admitted to being with Brian that day, but that they had not seen him past lunchtime. Due to their evasiveness and contradictory statements, it was decided that they were to be questioned further. And detective suspicions were aroused as both exhibited unusual behaviour during the interview. Norma appeared to be quite excited. Mary was calmer and her responses appeared to be calculated. Which is quite crazy when you think these are children that are 14 and 11 and to be quite calculated and calm at 11. During the following days of questioning, Mary informed police that she remembered seeing another local little boy playing with Brian on the afternoon of his death and that she had seen the boy hitting Brian. She named this boy and added she remembered him being dirty, covered in grass and weeds and that he had a small pair of scissors with him, that the scissors appeared to be broken. The local boy was questioned but he had an airtight alibi. He had been at Newcastle International Airport on the afternoon of the 31st of July. Witnesses had seen him there. He was immediately ruled out of the investigation. But unbeknownst to Mary, she had just incriminated herself. Only the police and the murderer would have known about those broken scissors. During the 4th of August, the parents of 14-year-old Norma Bell got in touch with the police, advising them that their daughter wanted to make a confession about what she knew about Brian's death. DCI Dobson visited Norma's home, where she informed him that her friend Mary had taken her to the Tin Lizzie, where she witnessed Brian's lifeless body. Mary apparently demonstrated to her how she had strangled him and carved the M on his stomach with a razor blade that she had hidden somewhere at the scene. And Mary added chillingly that she had enjoyed the act. Detectives were floored by this statement, and when Norma accurately matched Brian's stomach injuries on a drawing to those on the coroner's report, they were more than convinced that she was telling the truth. They then asked Norma to accompany them to the scene of the tin lizzie and show them where the razor blades had been hidden and where the broken scissors had lain, which she was able to do accurately, further cementing their belief in Norma's statement. So they decided to visit Mary at her home in the early hours of the 5th of August, where they found a much more defensive Mary, who accused Detective of, of trying to brainwash her. No arrest was made at this time, but Mary was rattled. Unbeknownst to Mary, later that day, Norma actually admitted to being present when Mary killed Brian Howe, and she made a full statement confirming this. Nonetheless, both girls were not under arrest at this time, only under suspicion. As police looked into the girls' backgrounds, other recent crimes in the area suddenly became much clearer. On the 26th of May, Mary's 11th birthday, a nursery was broken into on Woodland Crescent in the neighbourhood and entry was gained by peeling tiles off the roof. Once inside, the vandals had torn books, turned over desks and smeared paint on the walls around the nursery. Staff discovered the break-in the following morning and called police, who duly investigated. And at the scene, they discovered four separate notes which claimed responsibility for the murder of Martin Brown, and they were written in a child's hand. Looking at them now with hindsight, the notes not only made sense, now that Martin Brown's death was looked at as a murder, but the fact the notes were obviously written by children made Norma and Mary absolutely look like their culprits. Though the police advised it was probably just a childish prank, the nursery had installed an alarm system on the advice of the attending police in the event that the vandals returned to create more mischief. Just a few nights later, the alarm was triggered at the nursery and police arrived to investigate, 
Thankfully, there had not been another break-in, but Norma Bell and Mary Bell were found loitering outside. Other incidences that had been brought to the attention of the police were also surfacing, with reports from various neighbours stating that Mary had been acting strangely for some time. On the 11th of May 1968, Mary had been playing with a three-year-old boy when he fell from the top of an air raid shelter and was badly injured. His parents believed Mary when she stated it was an accident. But the very next day, three local mothers approached the police and advised them that Mary Bell had attempted to strangle their young daughters. The police had put this down to rough play. Mary was briefly spoken to. No charges were fined. But the cases against the girls was gaining momentum by the hour. On the 7th of August 1968, Brian House funeral was held at the local church and was attended by over 200 family members, friends and neighbours. DCI Dobson attended the funeral and observed Mary Bell standing outside the Howe family home as the child's tiny coffin was brought from the funeral home. Before the procession to the church began, Mary stood there watching, laughing and rubbing her hands. DCI Dobson later recalled thinking, my God, I've got to bring her in, she'll do another one. But fortunately, an arrest was planned for later that day. Norma Bell and Mary Bell were arrested that evening. Mary coldly replied, that's all right by me. And Norma burst into floods of tears, protesting her absolute innocence. Both were taken into police custody. The girls broke down during further questioning. Mary's subsequent statement admitted that she had been present during Brian's murder, but insisted that Norma was the murderer. Norma continued, through racking sobs, to say that Mary was the murderer. Both, however, admitted to breaking into the Woodland Crescent Nursery, vandalising the inside of the building, and, crucially, writing those four notes that were discovered there. The case against them was solidifying, and the evidence was building. While in custody, the girls were examined by various psychiatrists. Norma was found to be below average intelligence, easily influenced, and showed the level of emotion you would expect from a child her age. Mary's evaluation concluded that she was in fact a bright, cunning individual, though prone to sudden bursts of temper. She would often converse easily with the psychiatrist, but she could also be extremely defensive, sullen and moody. It was found that Mary was not suffering from mental illness, but likely that she suffered from a psychopathic personality disorder, which manifested itself in automatic denial, manipulation, bullying, flight or violence. Mary and Norma's trial began on the 5th of December 1968 in Newcastle for the murders of both Brian and Martin. The girls both pleaded not guilty and appeared each day in court flanked by plain-clothed officers. Mr Justice Ralph Cusack presided over the trial and on the first day of the trial, Mr Justice Cusack waived Norma and Mary's rights to anonymity due to their young age, which allowed the media free reign, publishing their names, ages and photographs of the girls. The public were appalled, the details of their shocking crimes starkly contrasting their innocent looks and their young ages. Rudolph Lyons, QC, prosecuting, opened the case against the girls with a statement which lasted six hours. I don't know if I've ever heard of a statement as like an opening statement that's lasted that long. Is that normal? I just don't feel like that's normal. That seems like a long time. But it makes sense because he's got a lot of evidence against them. And he inferred that while Mary was the more dominant of the pair, both girls did in fact act together and were therefore both equally responsible for killing the boys. Both Norma and Mary took the stand in their own defence. Norma continued to downplay her role in the murder, stating that she was there, but she had never touched the boys. And Mary's testimony lasted for four hours and had to be briefly paused when she sobbed in a policewoman's embrace. 
She continued to deny her involvement, stating that she was there, but it had been Norma that had killed the boys. Following this, Norma's mother took the stand and testified that prior to Brian Howe's murder, she and her husband had actually happened upon Mary, attempting to strangle Susan, Norma's little sister, and that Mary had only released her grip on Susan when her husband punched Mary in the shoulder, separating the two. This was really damning evidence against Mary. And later, a child psychiatrist testified that while Norma's mental age was eight years old, she was able to appreciate the seriousness of the acts she was accused of. I cannot imagine being in the court for this. This trial is just absolutely crazy. So closing arguments began on the 13th of December and Norma's defence counsel delivered his closing argument to the jury. He acknowledged that whilst both girls were being tried together, no actual evidence existed against Norma, except for that of Mary's accusations against her. So he implored the jury to ensure that um, they didn't let both little girls pay for the actions of just one of them. Mary's defence counsel delivered his closing argument, emphasising her fractured upbringing, her dysfunctional home life and a fantasy world that she would often retreat into in her mind. During this argument, he reflected on the testimony of David West, Dr David Westbury, who had believed that Mary had a serious personality disorder, impairing her responsibility, in her mind at least, for her crimes. During the closing argument from the prosecution, Rudolph Lyons QC conceded that, yes, Mary was the more domineering of the pair. She wielded a significant influence over Norma, who, despite being older than Mary in her years, was very much younger in mind. He also commented upon Mary's apparent lack of remorse and her clear cunning. The jury retired on the 17th of December and took just three hours before they reached their verdicts. Mary Bell was cleared of murder but convicted of manslaughter of both boys due to diminished responsibility and Mary burst into tears as this was read, as did her grandmother. Norma was cleared of all charges and she reacted by clapping her hands in excitement. During sentencing, D Justice Cusack described Mary Bell as a dangerous individual, stating that she posed a very grave risk to other children and added that the public must be protected from her. She was sentenced at Her Majesty's pleasure, which was then an indefinite sentence of imprisonment. Over the years, Mary was detained at a number of remand homes and secure units, one of those being Red Bank Secure Unit in Merseyside, where she was the only female among other 24 other inmates. How mad is that? She later claimed to have been sexually abused by staff and inmates when she was held at this facility, the abuse beginning when she was just 13. In November 1973, she was transferred at age 16 again to a secure wing of HM Prison Style in Cheshire, where she unsuccessfully applied for parole. And three years later, she was transferred to Moor Court Open Prison, where she began a secretarial course to prepare her for life outside of incarceration. However, in September 1977, at the age of 20, Mary made national headlines once more when she and Annette Priest, another inmate at Moor Court, made a successful escape from the open prison. They'd spent several days with two young men that they'd met, having fun, marvelling at the bright lights of the Blackpool amusements and staying in various local hotels. And then the two escapees had parted company. Mary Bell was arrested in Derbyshire at the home of one of the men, having dyed her dark locks blonde in an attempt to disguise her true identity and trying to start over. She was promptly returned to custody and she lost her privileges at prison for 28 days and Annette Priest was captured in Leeds a few days later. 
In June 1979, Mary transferred to HM Prison Arkham Grange, another open prison which would prepare her for life outside of incarceration and hopefully a successful release back into society. Such preparations at Arkham Grange included Mary working as a secretary and then a waitress in a cafe in York Minster. In both roles, she was heavily supervised and she was deemed fit for release in May 1980 at the age of 23, having served 11 years in custody. Due to continued public interest, Mary was given a new identity and she started a new life in an undisclosed location. As spokesman upon her release stated, Belle wishes to be given a chance to live a normal life and be left alone. On the 25th of May 1984, Mary Bell became a mother to a daughter who would be her only child. Mary collaborated with author Gita Sereny in 1998 to tell her life story, before and after her crimes. The book is Cries Unheard, the story of Mary Bell, and within the pages, Bell describes her early years as horrific, where she suffered extreme abuse at the hands of her alcoholic sex-working mother, Betty Cricket, and Betty apparently forced Mary into prostitution at an early age. At other times, she attempted to kill Mary, and Gita Sereny conducted many interviews with relatives, professionals, and friends who knew Mary at different stages of her life, who corroborated a lot of Mary's statements regarding her deprived early life. In the book, Mary does not claim that she was wrongly convicted and admits freely the abuse she suffered as a child is absolutely no excuse for her murdering those two boys, which many have taken as an admission of remorse. Release of the book caused considerable controversy between Release of the book caused considerable controversy among the general public and relatives of the victims because Mary was paid for her contributions to the book. Tony Blair's Labour government attempted to suppress its publication, attempting to find a legal loophole on the basis that the criminal should not profit in any way from their crimes, but this was unsuccessful and the book was published. Perhaps due to interest in the case increasing due to the pending release of the book, Mary's secret identity and location was was discovered by reporters in 1998. And upon their discovery in an East Sussex town, Mary Bell and her 14-year-old daughter, who had previously known nothing of her mother's past, had to immediately leave their home under the cover of bedsheets to protect them from the waiting, flashing cameras. They resided temporarily in a safe house where they were later relocated to another undisclosed area of the UK. Mary's daughter's right to anonymity was granted until she was 18 years old. However, in May 2003, Mary and her daughter were both approved lifelong anonymity. The order was approved by Dame Elizabeth Butler-Sloss and was later updated to include Mary Bell's granddaughter, born in 2009. People have argued that despite Mary's early crimes, she has done all she can to protect her family and give them the stable, normal life that she did not have. Anyone now being given lifelong anonymity is known as a Mary Bell Order. Notable holders of this order are Maxine Carr, John Venables, Robert Thompson, who are notorious for their parts in other crimes that shook the nation. And Mary Bell is now 64 years old and her location and identity remains unknown to this day. So, wow, thank you so, so much, Samantha, for such an interesting case and such a well-written script. This was an absolute joy to read and I really enjoyed learning as I was re- as I was reading this and presenting it to my listeners. So, thank you so much. That was Samantha Lewis's The Tyneside Strangler. And thank you very much, everybody, for joining me this week. 
I really, now I'm kind of hoping that this episode does go out, but it would be good to do an episode with Mark as well. So I'm just not really sure how I feel, but I really enjoyed reading that to you guys and learning a little bit more about Mary Bell. It's a name, it's a case that I've heard of a lot, and it's a name, it's a case that I know the basics of, but really, really, really interesting for me to kind of look at this in a little bit more detail. What I do find really sad for me is that Martin Brown, they don't know how he died and that he was just seen as an accident at first, but how amazing that his family finally got some justice. Thank you so much for joining us this week and next week we'll be back as normal with the both of us and I think that's it. Love you all, bye!